There you go. Good morning again. Welcome each and every one of you to Paradise Valley Christian Church. We're glad that you are here with us. We want to welcome those online. Thank you for taking the time to join us. We're going through a sermon series called Follow the Servant through the Gospel of Mark. And so turn over to Mark chapter 3, verse 20 through 30. And the hard part about teaching and preaching through a book of the Bible is there is the, there's a tendency or is there's the temptation to want to sidestep certain difficult passages. And today is one of those passages, there's a lot in there, so I'm going to try to get through as much as that as I can. And so we're going to be looking at Mark chapter 3, verses 20 through 30. And as you read these words, you get down to the last verses of Jesus, and there's this phrase there, this idea of an unforgivable sin. And as we read these verses, again, it begs the question, like, what is the unforgivable sin? Like, I don't want to have the unforgivable sin. Like, I need to know what it is so I don't commit that unforgivable sin, right? And there are people that maybe be here, that are here wondering, you know, maybe have I already committed that unforgivable sin? What if I have somehow already crossed this line that I can't come back from? And so there's questions arise, and my hope is, as we don't skip over this passage of Scripture, that I believe we can all begin, through the Holy Spirit's directing in our lives, to really begin to understand what these verses are trying to teach us. So will you pray with me this morning? God, May you speak boldly into our lives. May we hear what you have for us to hear, and may we be accurate. May I share what's accurate according to your word, and if there is anything that, uh, God, where I fall short, I pray that you would fill in. And it's in the name of Jesus I pray. Amen. If you're able and willing this morning, will you stand with me if we turn to Mark chapter 3, verse 20 through 30. Then Jesus entered a house, and again a crowd gathered. So that he and his disciples were not even able to eat. When his family heard about this, they went to, the, and went to take charge of him, for they said, He is out of his mind. And the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said, He is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons. He is driving out demons. So Jesus called them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, that kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. I tell you the truth. All the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. He said this because they were saying he has an evil spirit. You may be seated. And as I began to put this message together, I thought about how so many people in our world have the mentality that all people go to heaven, right? It's kind of like that movie, that cartoon movie of all dogs go to heaven. Well, they want to say all humans go to heaven. It doesn't matter what you believe. It doesn't matter who you serve. It doesn't matter what sort of life you live and the choices that you make. It's just all about, you know, everybody makes their way to heaven. All roads lead to heaven However, that is not necessarily the truth. According to John chapter 14, verse 6, it says, Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life, and no one comes to the Father except through me. And Acts chapter 4, verses 11 through 12 says, Jesus is the stone you builders rejected 
which has become the cornerstone. Salvation is found in no one else, for there is no one, no other name under heaven given to mankind by which we must be saved. If you've been around the church very long, you probably have read the verse, Romans chapter 3, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall, have fallen short of the glory of God. And you've probably read Romans chapter 6, verse 23, that says that the wages of sin is death, meaning our mistakes, our mess-ups, our sins separates us from God. And our punishment is to die, not only a physical death eventually, but a spiritual death. But my, also, my, my guess also this morning is that you've probably read the rest of Romans chapter 6, verse 23, that also says, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Meaning God has the power through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ to overcome sin and death and to wipe our slate clean and to offer us salvation through that sacrifice that Jesus was willing to make for us on the cross. And so then that once again begs this question from these verses, like how is it possible that Jesus says there is a sin that is unforgivable? What does it mean when Jesus says straight up, there is one sin that won't be forgiven, and that is the blasphemies against the Holy Spirit? Now, a lot of people interpret that different ways, and some, again, you know, they, they might be thinking, you might be thinking this morning, like, what if at age 13, I committed that unforgivable sin, and there's no hope for me now? You know, what if I've already, I'm too far gone sort of thing? And as you look at this passage, I think we have to really understand where this statement comes from. Where does this all start? And I think you have to back up a little bit, and you have the teachers of the law that are continually refusing to validate who Jesus says he is, that he is the Son of God, that he is the Messiah. And so you have here in verse 20 through 22 this accusation that takes place. And so there's three A's this morning if you're taking notes. An accusation from Mark chapter 3, verse 20 through 22. And as you begin in verse 20, we see Jesus' ministry has grown to enormous proportions, verse 20. And it's so large that there's this big crowd that they can't even eat a meal on their own by themselves. And like many, you have these, these relatives that are thinking, hey, what's going on with this? This guy's a little over-fanatical to me. And in, in fact, in these verses, it says, according to Verse 21, when his family heard about this, they went to take charge of him, for they said, he is out of his mind. And can you imagine the emotions that Jesus probably was dealing with? If all these people that want to come for the healings, he's trying to proclaim the message, the good news of the kingdom of God. His own family members are concerned that he's kind of going crazy, that they're not really in support of him. And he's dealing with all these different things. And then on top of all that, a whole other group of people show up. In verse 23, so Jesus, verse, excuse me, verse 22, and the teachers of the law who came down from Jerusalem said he is possessed by Beelzebub, by the prince of demons, he is driving out demons. 
And so you have these Pharisees that's been, they've been dogging on Jesus this whole time about saying, hey, you're not who you say you are. They're trying to figure out a way to trap him. And they're bringing in the big guns, okay? They're bringing in reinforcements. They, they say, hey, all you scribes, teachers of the law from Jerusalem, you guys come help us out. In fact, at that time, Jerusalem was known as a very educated city. It's the capital, right? And so here you have these scribes that are coming from the educated city of Jerusalem out to the country where Jesus is out there talking talking to everybody about the kingdom of God, right? Okay? And so you have Jesus, he's out there, and they have the scribes showing up, and they, they're saying, hey, we got to fix this Jesus problem, okay? We got to take care, and these scribes, they're, they're no slouches when it comes to education. They have degrees, and their degrees have degrees, right? Okay? And they're pretty educated individuals, and they come out, and they say, hey, we're, we're going to take care of this Jesus, and you have to remember that they're on a mission. They're on a mission to destroy Jesus. And they're looking for any excuse to have him stoned. And these men have no answers to the things that are taking place. And the effect is that it's having on the people. And it's driving them crazy. They're getting, it's like, what can we figure out how to do? you know, get rid of this guy, and his teaching was superior to theirs. They tried to accuse him of breaking the Sabbath, and now the people are beginning to ask if this might be the Messiah. We're going to read that in Matthew 12, verse 22. And in their frustration, they resort to slander by accusing him of being in cahoots with the devil, like he's on the same team as the devil. And this act by the Pharisees brought about the serious warning of the unforgivable sin. See, kind of see what's taking place here. And so there's this accusation. So lacking any other explanation for the things that Jesus is doing and not wanting to admit that he is who he says he is, these men resort to an accusation they hope will get the people worked up. And one of the prominent aspects of the Lord's ministry was casting out demons. It was not something hidden. It was something that was very obvious. It was in front of everybody. These amazing things were happening. And it's not like today where people take a picture and you see the picture online. You're like, is that a really real picture? You know, some shark, you know, taking a whole person and they're just out there fishing. You're like, is that a real picture or not? You know, pictures can be doctored. Videos can be edited. But not at this time. They're right there in the midst, seeing it with their own eyes, and they could not deny those things that were happening. And they would have caused, you know, if they would have agreed to what was taking place, it would have caused them to once again lose credibility with those that they were trying to coerce or lead. And so they said, well, yes, he does these things, but not by God. He does it by Satan's power. Not by God, but by Satan's power. In fact, uh, they, they call him out as Beelzebub. And as I did a little research on that, Beelzebub can mean Lord of the Flies or Lord of the Dwelling Place. It's one of the many names that are titles uh, that are ascribed to Satan. And the idea that I kind of got from reading different commentaries, this idea of what, where do flies oftentimes normally gravitate to? I heard it this morning as the, the reprocessed straw or three, I don't know. But yeah, I mean, to some gross stuff, right? To some things that we don't want to be anything a part of. Flies oftentimes gravitate to those smells and situations that are filthy and gross and disgusting and nasty and wicked and vile and evil. And that's exactly who they're trying to accuse Jesus of being. 
that he's in cooperation with Satan, the Lord of everything that is wicked. And I think that when humans start to say that the things that Jesus does are evil, they're beginning to head down the slippery slope that leads to the unforgivable sin. And you might think, well, well, we don't have Jesus right here physically with us, and so no one's going to accuse Jesus of that right now because he's not here. He's not here bodily in the flesh. But who is Jesus' body here on this earth right now? We are, right? The body of Christ, the church. And obviously, again, we don't have Jesus physically, but the body is here this morning. And as I thought about this, do we, you know, could, could we ever imagine a time in our world's history or in our culture where people would look at what the body of Christ is doing and instead of calling it good, they would call it evil? Could, could you ever imagine a culture where people look at the church and the stands that it makes and instead of when they used to say it was good, they now say that it's evil? They used to call it right, and now they call it wrong. They used to call it truth, and now they call it intolerant. Can you imagine a time like that? Because we're living in that time, aren't we? A time that wants to attribute the work of Jesus to the devil. Isaiah chapter 5, verse 20 says, Woe to those who call evil good and good evil who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. See, we live in a time where in the church, if we take a stand for what is right on marriage, on, on relationships, on purity, on faith, any faith issue really that where we say, hey, this is what God says to be truth, that the world then looks at us and says, man, you're evil. You're intolerant. We don't want anything to do with you because, you know, that's, that's not what we think. And so those in this world that begin to call good evil and evil good, man, they better check themselves. Because Jesus wasn't going to remain silent. See, they accused Jesus of being on the same team as Satan, but then Jesus gives an answer. And so there's an accusation and then there's an answer. In verse 23 down through 27, so Jesus called them and spoke to them in parables. How can Satan drive out Satan? If a kingdom is divided against itself, the kingdom cannot stand. If a house is divided against itself, that house cannot stand. And if Satan opposes himself and is divided, he cannot stand. His end has come. In fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man, then he can rob his house. And up to this point, Jesus has pretty much stayed quiet about the accusations that people are making against him, but, but now he speaks out in verse 23, and he, he speaks to them in parables, which again we know is a very common way that Jesus would teach the people at that time. And the Lord uses kind of four arguments to refute the accusations of the the Pharisees. And the first one is just common sense. 
It's like me talking to my kids when they make a poor decision. I'm like, did that make any sense that you would do this because you know that this would be the end result? And, and that's what he says here in, in verse 23 where it says, how can Satan drive out Satan? Like, that doesn't make any sense. It's just common sense that the stability of a kingdom or a family is dependent upon the unity of the, the, the group. Or once a kingdom or a home is divided, it's easy to defeat them. And so then there's the argument of absurdity, meaning like, what are you thinking? Like, how does this even make any remote sense that somehow if Satan is trying to have an evil influence in the world and has all these different things taking place, that here comes Jesus and he's going to remove one of those evil things, that somehow that is him being on the same team. And again, first service, I just thought about the idea of, uh, watching little kids play basketball, how oftentimes they will take the ball and they're on the side that they're supposed to be shooting a hoop in and they take off towards the other end and the whole crowd is yelling, wrong, no, don't go that way, no, no, no. And they go down and they make a layup on the opposing team and they score a, a point, two points for the opposing team. And you're like, oh man, see, that that is not productive for trying to win the game when you're giving points to the other team. And that's what he's saying. It's absurd to say that I'm on... Satan's team because it wouldn't make any sense. Satan is against, isn't against Satan. Satan is against God. And so it's absurd to say that Jesus is on the same team as Satan. And the argument for, from their own practice, if you go to Matthew chapter 12, just turn back a few pages, Matthew chapter 12, verse 27 through 28, uh, it says, and if I drive out demons, same, same context of what's going on in the story, just from Matthew's perspective. If I drive out demons by Beelzebub, by whom do your people drive them out? So then they will be your judges. But if I drive out demons by the Spirit of God, then the kingdom of God has come upon you. And so you have them, the, this idea of, hey, your own people drive out demons, okay? Jesus saying, hey, I'm, I'm the same as they are, I'm right in the middle of the battle, and I'm doing the same things that you are allowing the people that you trust to do, so why is it okay for them to do that and not me? And then you have this argument from experience, verse 27, verse 27 is a little tricky, because it feels like the strong man should be Jesus, but that's not necessarily the case from what I understand these verses to mean. Verse 27, in fact, no one can enter a strong man's house and carry off his possessions unless he first ties up the strong man. Then he can rob his house. And I think the main thing that I want you to understand from this verse is that Jesus is stronger than Satan. Okay? The fact is, is that we live in a world where scripture says that Satan is the prince of this world, meaning Satan does have power. If you try to go to, to get in a fight with Satan all on your own, you're going to have some rough, you're going to have some rough times. But the truth is, is that Jesus can wipe the floor with Satan, amen? That's right. And that's what he's saying here. Even this strong man, which would be in from my understanding, to be Satan, even if Satan is strong in this world, he has power in this world, guess what? You go in, tie him up, he, he doesn't have any power anymore. And that's what Jesus is saying. Hey, he says, I can handle Satan. I, I have more power than Satan. I'm coming in to dethrone Satan in this world. And so he, he's going to take his possessions back, meaning his people. 
and there's a lot of people in this world that are tied up and, and tangled up in the sin of this world, and, and Satan has control over them. But guess what? Pa Jesus has more power to overcome that in those lives than Satan does. And so Satan is no match for Jesus. And I heard it, it said this way, when Jesus died on the cross and rose three days later, Jesus delivered a fatal blow to Satan. It's kind of like when a farmer goes and cuts the head off of a chicken. That is a fatal blow to that chicken. You don't see too many reattachments of heads, all right? That chicken is done for. However, what does the chicken do after having its head cut off? You know, it's running around like a chicken with its head cut off, right? Okay, and so you have this chicken that's running around. It's still kicking up dust. It's still slamming into things. It's still scaring the craziness out of my kids, you know. They're like, ah, chicken, why doesn't it have a head, you know? And so there's this idea of the fact that these, these chickens are running around being crazy wild. They still have this effect and chaos that's taking place in their world, and, and sometimes that's what happens with Satan. You see, Jesus administered a fatal blow to Satan and chopped his head off. But Satan's still running around this world, kicking up dust, causing chaos, scaring people. But once again, when Jesus comes back, there's no more battle. There's, there's no more, I wonder if Jesus is going to win or if Satan's going to win. Are they going to, you know, pull punch it? Or there's gonna, is there going to be this fight that takes place? I wonder how it's, no, it's not going to be like that. When Jesus comes back, it's over. It's done with. You know, and the fact that Jesus is going to come back in power and strength, there, there's no opportunity for things to, to, for Satan to have any more power over us. So even through, though Satan has power in this world, Satan has no power over us if we're in Christ. And Jesus has come to take care of all the evil works of the devil. And once again saying that he is God. And the sad thing is, as you look at these verses, he's saying, hey, I am God, and not everybody is responding the same way. There's some hardening of hearts that are taking place, because I think a lot of times as humans, when we hear something from God that we have a hard time understanding or wanting to agree with, our hearts start to get hard, and we say, ah, is that really what God wants me to do? Is that really what he's saying in this passage? We begin to rationalize. We begin to change what's taking place from what God wants from us, and our hearts become hard to the truth of God's word. And a hard heart often leads to irrational logic. And you see that in this verse, in these verses. A hard heart often leads to irrational logic. And we not only see it in this passage, but we see it in our culture all the time. It's the kind of logic that says, well, because God's grace is greater than our sin, then we can sin as much as we want, and then that will magnify God's grace in our lives. That sounds like a pretty good plan. I'll sin as much as I want. God's grace is greater. It just makes God look better the more I sin, so that's, that's going to work out great. And that's the irrational logic that comes from a hard heart that says, I don't want to do what you want me to do, God. I want to do what I want to do. And yet Romans chapter 6 Verses 1 through 4 says the very opposite of that irrational logic. It says, what shall we say then? Shall we go on sinning so that grace may increase? Uh, no. 
Okay, by no means. We died to sin. How can we live in it any longer? Or don't you know that all of us who were baptized into Christ Jesus were baptized into his death? We were therefore buried with him through baptism into death in order that just as Christ was raised from the dead through the glory of the Father, we too may live a new life. It's only when we soften our hearts and really hear what God is sharing with us through his word that we begin to have thoughts and logic that make sense. But these Pharisees, these scribes, they didn't want anything to do with Jesus to the point where they're making up irrational logic like, okay, well, he's doing this amazing miracle. It's, it's got to be from Satan, and it's definitely not from God. He is not from God. They, they, were, they were adamant. They're not going to admit that he is from God, and yet Jesus offers here in these verses this ironclad argument to prove his accusers wrong, and then he challenges them or admonishes them and that's the third A, the ad admonition from verse 28 through 30. Verse 28 says, And I tell you the truth, all the sins and blasphemies of men will be forgiven them. But whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. And if you notice here, the biggest issue that Jesus had here is a simple refusal of salvation. They, they refused it. They, they didn't want anything to do what he had to offer. And so before we get to the blasphemies part, I want to touch on the, the sins part. The sin is this idea of missing the mark when you're shooting at a target. You hit everywhere on the target except for right in the middle, the bullseye. That's me usually. And so you're missing the mark. God has a standard and you're not living up to that standard. And another uh, definition is, uh, of sin is actions in rebellion against God. And how many sins will be forgiven according to this verse 28? I tell you the truth. How many? All. Yes. All sins. And that, that's, that's exciting to me because I was like, well, praise God that all sins, because, you know, I don't know about you, but I've had a few of those in my life. I've had a few mistakes in my life, and I'm praising God that no matter what sin I have, that I'm forgiven of that. And that's important for us to remember this morning, that there is not a momentary sin so terrible that it is beyond forgiveness. There is not a sin that is so wicked, so evil, that Jesus isn't able to forgive. And what we see on the news, all the terrible things, the crimes, the things that people do against one another, we think, man, how can God ever forgive those individuals? And guess what? Jesus is saying, I forgive that. I'm willing to forgive that. I, I, I'm all in on forgiving those types of things. And, and do you realize that Jesus has forgiven murderers and rapists and molesters and thieves and abusers and adulterers and etc., etc., whatever sin you can think of that's so terrible? Jesus has forgiven all those things. In fact, many of the heroes of the Bible that we talk about did those things. You think about King David or Moses or maybe even Paul, the apostle. He gave approval of killing, the killing of Stephen, who was a preacher at the time. And so I hope that none of you have ever wanted to give approval to killing a preacher, all right? I hope you've never gotten to that point. If you have, please let me know so I have a heads up, okay? But that was Paul. He was a bad guy, all right? He gave his life to Jesus, and everything changed. 
But he still had sin. But every sin that Paul had committed, Jesus forgave. And there's not a sin that Jesus' blood won't cover. And then Jesus even says, and whatever blasphemies they utter. Well, what are blasphemies? These are some of the definitions I found to speak accusatorily, to rail at, revile someone, a malicious misrepresentation. It's the attributing of evil to God or denying some good we should attribute to him. And another one is this idea of deliberate irreverence. Deliberate irreverence. And and as you think about all those definitions of blasphemy, guess what? They all can still be forgiven. They still can be forgiven. Even the idea of blasphemy, which is a deliberate irreverence, I don't know if you've ever experienced this, where you know you're sinning, you're choosing to sin, and you're saying, I'm not, God, you just stay over there for a second, I'm still going to do this, right? We have this idea where we're deliberately irreverent toward God, and, and, and God says, I'm still willing to forgive that. In fact, even in, in the other passage from Matthew that we've looked at already, Matthew chapter 12, verse 32, it says, anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man, speaking about Jesus, Jesus is speaking about himself here, anyone who speaks a word against the Son of Man will be forgiven, but anyone who speaks against the Holy Spirit will not be forgiven, either in this age or in the age to come. You're like, well, what's going on here? How, why is he willing to forgive this and not that? And as I thought about this idea, I think we live in a world where we have a lot of stuff that takes place in our media that is just so disrespectful, so irreverent towards God. Things that I can't believe people would say or, or videos that people put out about Jesus or God and all the irreverence that takes place there. And Jesus says, I'm still willing to forgive that. I'm still willing to say that's not the worst thing that's possible. I'm still willing to say I forgive you. And Jesus is willing to forgive all those things. But here's the one thing that he says in verse 29. Whoever blasphemes against the Holy Spirit will never be forgiven. He is guilty of an eternal sin. And so there it is. Here is the unforgivable sin. Blasphemy against the Holy Spirit is the unforgivable sin. And again, it's like, okay, well, have I done that? Like, have I, at 13 years old, did I already commit that sin? Like, am I too far? I I don't know. And there's a lot of ideas on what this means. And my hope is, as we kind of close out this morning, is just, just to keep it as simple as possible for you. And so look at verse 30. It says, he said this because they were saying he has an evil spirit. Now, Jesus, you know, this part is not in this, this passage right here for no reason. He brings it back around, and he said this because they were saying he has an evil spirit, meaning he warns them about the unforgivable sin because these people didn't believe that Jesus was God. They didn't believe that Jesus was the Messiah. He warns them about the unforgivable sin, the hardening of their hearts, because they put their belief in the fact that he was of the devil. And their hearts were so hard that they weren't willing to think about the fact that he really was from God. And Rick Phillips says, here they not only heard Jesus' claims about himself, but they also received clear validation of those claims through the power of the Holy Spirit via the miracle Jesus had just performed. 
instead of believing, they attributed to the devil what was the work of Christ through the Holy Spirit. They said, he is an evil spirit. So hardened were their hearts that even knowing the miracle was of the holy God, they ascribed it to the evil one. Knowing it was true, they nonetheless insisted it was false. That is the sin of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit. Willfully and intentionally refusing to submit to God and his word. And as biblical scholar Graham Cole notes, the blasphemy against the Spirit is that self-righteous, persistent refusal to embrace the offer of salvation in Christ. To consistently, persistently refuse to embrace the offer of salvation in Christ. You see, the Holy Spirit plays an essential role in our salvation. We read in John 3, 5 through 7 that says, Jesus answered, Very truly I tell you, no one can enter the kingdom of God unless they are born of water and the Spirit. Flesh gives birth to flesh, but the Spirit gives birth to the Spirit. You should not be surprised of my saying, at my saying, you must be born again. And then also in Titus 3, 5 through 6, the importance of the Spirit is, is proclaimed there. It says, He, meaning God, saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy. He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit, whom He poured out on us generously through Jesus Christ, our Savior. See, blasphemy against the Holy Spirit can't be forgiven Here it is. Why? Because you are unwilling to repent and receive the only thing that can forgive you. Do you get that? When when you say, nope, I don't want you. Uh, Nope, I don't believe what you say about Jesus. Nope, I don't need the Holy Spirit in my life. No, the the sin that's in my life I'm okay with. You know, I I don't want anything to do with you. I've got it all taken care of. That is a sin that cannot be forgiven because you will not receive the only thing that can forgive you. And it's kind of like this, and hopefully this helps bring the point home as we close out. It's kind of like when I go swimming with my kids, especially when they're young, and they want me to jump, they want me to catch them as they jump off the diving board. So they go to the edge, and they're like, a little closer, a little closer, and pretty soon, like, I'm directly under the, the diving board, and they jump off, and they kick me in the face, you know, like, oh, man, you know, and I'm, 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 I'm all right with that because they're still okay, they're still alive, they still want my help, you know. But then there's other kids at the pool that jump in, and they're jumping on top of one another, and, and I'm looking around like, whose kids are these kids, and why are there no parents watching them, you know? And I'm looking, I'm like, ooh, that kid's maybe turning blue a little bit. I, I say, hey, do you, you need help? Do you need help? And I reach my hand out. They're like, no, no, I'm okay. You know, it's kind of a stranger danger, but you're drowning. You know, I'm like, okay, well, I just thought I would ask just while you're almost drowning to death here. And maybe a little later, you know, the, the kid's head just keeps bobbing up. And I'm like, they're sprouting. Like, blah, 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 you know, and I'm thinking, hey, do you, would you like this floaty? You know, I have an extra floaty here. You want that? And like, no, no, I'm fine. I can do it by myself. You know, and I'm thinking, what is going on here? They, they could use my help, but they don't want my help. And, and I can tread water for quite some time, but eventually I'm going to get out of the pool, right? I'm going to be done with being in the pool. The time's going to be up. I'm going to get out, and those kids that might be struggling, 
they're going to be left to themselves. And the truth is, is that a lot of times, we as humans, we hear the Holy Spirit's convicting in our lives. The Holy Spirit's convicting our hearts and in our minds. And the Holy Spirit is saying, hey, I have salvation to offer you. Hey, here's a flotation device. And all the while, what do we do? No, I don't want anything to do with that. No, I can handle it. You know, I, I, don't, I don't need your, I'm just fine. I can do it by myself. And guess what? There's going to be a time when Jesus returns and it's going to be too late. It's going to be too late. And so as the praise team comes this morning, if you're here this morning and you're, you are concerned that maybe, maybe you have committed that unforgivable sin, well, I just want to give you a heads up. You most likely, if that's what you're concerned about, that you, that you might have committed that unforgivable sin, that almost guarantees that you have not. And this is the reason why. If your heart were hardened to the point that you were willing to commit that unforgivable sin, then guess what? You would no longer be concerned about your eternal state. And instead, you'd be pleading, instead of pleading to Jesus, you, like the Pharisees, would be trying to figure out how you could destroy his kingdom. But let me say a final word to any of you here who are attending church just kind of visiting, maybe you're just kind of dabbling in a relationship with God. You're not really sure if you're going to go all in with Jesus yet. You've not accepted the Spirit's conviction in your life that Jesus really is the Lord, that he really does need to be your Savior. Then you are in a dangerous situation and should be very concerned with this matter of blasphemy against the Holy Spirit, because if you realize the truth of Christ and his gospel, then don't wait. If you know that truth, then you can't just put it off. You need to turn to him so that your heart isn't hearted by the blasphemy and, and the unbelief that takes place in this world. And if that's your situation, then just let me urge you this morning as 2 Corinthians 6, 2 says, now is the time of God's favor. Now is the day of salvation. See, you can know that you have not committed that unforgivable sin or that you ever will when you're willing to confess your sin and turn to Jesus. And I pray if you need to do that this morning, that you would do that today. As we sing our song of invitation, will you stand with us as we sing?